So Christmas is a bigger holiday than Easter, right? Even inside the church, I don't think anybody would really argue with that. More people come to Christmas services than Easter kind of services. But you ever wonder why? I mean, you could make an argument that Easter is kind of the more important uh, holiday to Christians. But why is Easter not as big as Christmas? And some of it's just because our culture has embraced Christmas, right? So there's gifts and there's family and there's meals and all that. Like Christmas is a national holiday and Easter is maybe more of a church holiday. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, I think in Christmas, we got this cute, cuddly little baby, right? Who doesn't like baby Jesus, yeah? Whereas Easter, it's harder to get excited about a bloodied, crucified, resurrected Jesus, Now, worshiping the baby Jesus, that's obviously incredibly important and and something that God calls us to do and and that we we want to do as Christians. But for some people, Jesus never leaves the manger, right? Like he, he always stays this cute, cuddly baby who never grows up to be the Jesus that challenges us, that says hard things to us. I mean, some people go as far as they just keep praying to baby Jesus. You're thinking that never happens. Oh, watch, it does. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And, of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, we- um, you know, sweetie... Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. <sighs> Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist paw. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the grace. Okay. Dear eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, Mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. (laughs) There's something about baby Jesus that we're all attracted to. Something better than adult Jesus who challenges us, who says hard things, who requires something from us. Have you been challenged by Jesus this year? Like how is Jesus challenging you this Christmas season? I I was challenged by a a, a statue, a picture of a statue of Jesus. It it was in San Diego at this church and people had vandalized the statue and then the church was kind of repairing what it could of it. Here's 
a, a picture of the a Jesus statue that was vandalized. And they, like I said, repaired a lot of the damage done. They were gonna go put the hands back on. You see the hands had been knocked off. And the pastor said, no, we're not gonna put the hands back on. Instead, they took a sign and they put it at the bottom of the statue that said, you're the hands of Jesus. Like, let's don't put the hands of Jesus back on the statue, but let's let this statue remind us that we, as Christians, are the hands of Jesus. What's that mean? Well, of course, to some extent, it just means that we embody Jesus. Like, we are Jesus' representatives here. We carry on the mission of Jesus. We're the body of Christ. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, now, now you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ living out the heart, the mission of Jesus here on earth. It means you're the eyes of Jesus to see need. It means you're the compassion, the heart of Jesus. It means that you're the hands of Jesus doing good works of mercy, the feet of Jesus, pursuing those that God loves, the mouth of Jesus, speaking the truth in love. And then we go back to the Christmas story and we just think here for a moment. When you were born, you got no say in anything about how you entered into this world. Right? You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick where you were born or your health that you came out of the womb with. You didn't pick your race, your financial situation, the century you were born in. I mean, you really picked nothing about your birth. But what's true about us is not true about Jesus. In other words, we didn't pick anything about our birth, but, but he picked everything about how he would enter into this world. He chose all the circumstances. Now, if we'd had those options, like if somebody came to us before we'd been born and said, okay, you can pick how you're going to come to earth. Uh, you're going to pick how you're going to enter into this world. We might say, well, I'd like to be a king or I'd like to be an accomplished athlete or a famous actor or maybe a CEO of a big Fortune 100 business, right? But Jesus had all those choices and he didn't pick any of those. Instead, in Philippians 2, it says that he came as a servant. With all the options in front of him, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant. That's how Jesus chose to come into our world. Now, now think, if Jesus had become a, a president or, or perhaps a billionaire, it would, have, it would have required a great act of humility to be either of those. But instead, he became a servant. He chose, he chose to be born to a helpless young girl who gave birth to him with no bed, no sheets, no warm water, no nurse to help. He didn't choose to come to parents who were powerful and wealthy and well-connected and could use those connections and that wealth to give him opportunity. Instead, he chose to be born. He chose to be born to poor parents who had no connections and no wealth. He chose to be born in a small, nowhere town. So Jesus surveys the world, knowing all the options and all the opportunities. He rejects all the capitals, all the places of power. He rejects all the university towns, those with, with, with the educated people. And instead, he chooses to be born in Bethlehem, a town so insignificant that it's not even found in the records of Judah. See, Jesus, he moved into our neighborhood. And when he did, he chose to live on the wrong side of the tracks. He chose to, to be among the poor and the vulnerable and the outcast. Jesus started his life in a manger surrounded by animals and he finished his life on a cross surrounded by thieves. And in between those two moments, in between his birth and his death, 
He never forgot those people who lived their life on the margins. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus because John has sent them. He's unsure that Jesus really is the Messiah. And so they come, they ask Jesus, are you sure you're the one? And here's what Jesus says. Go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those who are with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. See, Jesus preached the good news to everybody. He he gave everybody an opportunity to see who he is and to turn from their sin and follow him. And yet he has a special place in his heart for the poor and the downtrodden like God always had. The gospels tell us that he raised the son, uh, raised the, uh, uh, the son of the poor woman back to life. They tell us that he spoke to women who were immoral in the society and received condemnation, he spoke to them with respect. The Gospels tell us that he initiated conversations with women, something that a man of his standing in that culture would have never done, but Jesus rejected the sexism of his day. And he rejected the racism of his day, making Samaritans the heroes of his story. Jesus took time to be with children, even though his disciples told him it was a waste of his time. Jesus paid special attention to those with leprosy. Perhaps you know that to have leprosy is an extremely contagious disease. And therefore, in societies that didn't know what was wrong or how to cure it, they would shun people with leprosy, literally kick them out of the community so that they would live in deep isolation and deep poverty. Jesus came and he didn't just heal their disease, but he reached out and he touched them. Perhaps their first human contact they'd had in years. And he brought them back into the community. See, Jesus' passion for the poor and the vulnerable, the hurting and the outcast, it was, it was shaped by his family because that's where he grew up. Those are the people he grew up with. He grew up with the people who were the overlooked, the underdogs. There's a phrase that, that theologians and scholars debate. It, it, it's this, it's, does God have a preferential option for the poor? Now, It's one of those tricky phrases because it depends on what you mean by it. God says that all people, poor or rich, black or white, regardless of your race, your gender, where you're from, that all people are born sinful and need a savior. And yet it seems as you you read the story of the gospels, if you read about how Jesus chose to come into our world, how he chose to come to a family without wealth and without rights and without privilege, maybe it is right that God has a special place in his heart, if that's what we mean by preferential, a special place in his heart for the underdog. If our world is tilted toward the rich, the famous, the powerful, God is tilted toward the underdog. And and that brings us back to that statue. Right, like if, if, if we're the hands and feet and eyes and heart of Jesus, if we are the body of Christ here, if we are to continue on his work and his ministry here, and he moved toward the vulnerable and the needy, then what does that demand of us? Now, the early Christians, they totally got it. I mean, they got that they were Jesus' representatives, his hands and his feet. In 165 AD, the Roman Empire is experiencing this plague. 
Now, researchers are pretty sure it was smallpox, but of course there's no vaccination, no cure. And of course the, the Romans in 165, they, they have no idea what's happening. All they know is that people are dying all around them. And it is super scary. So there's a doctor, a well-known Roman doctor named Galen, who writes about what people's response was to that plague. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. So you get it? The, the, the plague's here, people are dying, we're scared, so what do we do? Well, we get away from people. We get away from people who are sick, who are suffering, even people who dear to us, our family members, our friends, we just get away. We throw them in the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt. Why? Well, because they're hoping to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So what Galen says is that when the fear set in and people, people realized that, that they couldn't explain exactly why everybody was dying, they knew it was some sickness, what they did is they looked out for themselves. They protected themselves. And that's in great contrast to the Christians. Because you know what the Christians did? They helped other people who were in need. One church had over 1,500 distressed people. That's what the word they use, distressed people on their giving roles that they were trying to help during this time. A bishop in Alexandria, now in Egypt, he he wrote to his uh, congregation commending them for what they had done. And he said, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty. So this is how the Christians acted in in response to the same kinds of conditions. They didn't spare themselves and think only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy for they were infected by others with the disease of their neighbors and cheerfully accepted their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. So so the early church got there were the hands and the feet, the eyes, the heart, the mouth of Jesus. So when they saw a need, they went to it, even at expense to themselves. They went toward those who were hurting, those who were dying, those who were suffering, those who were sick, and they lost their life doing it because they got that same disease. But, historians say, this is one of the key reasons that the church grew. How did the church go from this tiny group, 120 people after the resurrection of Jesus, 120 people get together and pray. In three centuries, it's made up over half the Roman Empire now considers themselves Christians. How does that happen? And the historians say one reason is because Christians looked out for those in need. And you're, well, okay, but it sounds from everything we just talked about that they looked out for each other. So maybe that's how. They just looked out for other people like themselves that believed like they did, people inside the church. There's an emperor named Julian who was, who was frustrated. He was a pagan emperor. He was frustrated with people like him who believed in all the Roman gods because they weren't uh, more sacrificial, more caring. He sees the church growing. He doesn't like it. And so he's like, okay, people, we got to do a better job. Let's imitate these Christians and what they're doing. Here's what he said to his people, what he wrote. The impious Galileans, that's what he called Christians. He, He wasn't a big fan. The impious Galileans, in addition to their own poor, support ours. So what he says is, look, they don't just help people inside the church, but outside the church. Not just people who believe like they do, but people who are antagonistic to those beliefs. They're helping everybody. And it's shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. He says, look, those Christians are showing us up because they are serving 
people who, who we should be serving. But all we're doing is thinking of ourselves. Now, now remember, remember that all the people who are Christians, all the people who are giving self-sacrificially, they all grew up in the same Roman culture, the same values. They went to the same schools. They, they, they took in the same media. You know, they, they grew up in the same place. So, so how is it, what explains how Christians went from buying all the same things the Romans did that said, push your neighbor out of the way, leave their body unburied, look out for yourself, to now they, they're moving toward the hurting, willing to give their life. What explains that? Well, it's simple, isn't it? I mean, it's Jesus. Jesus had re, uh, reoriented, radically reoriented the church and Christians' lives so that instead of being self-focused, uh, they became self-sacrificial. That was the mark of a Christian. And you know when it started? It started that first Christmas. It started that first Christmas when Jesus came to us and moved into our neighborhood. It started in the incarnation when, when he went to the people on the wrong side of the tracks, the people that nobody else wanted to pay attention to. That Jesus didn't wait on us to come to him, but he sought us out. He entered into our world. And now we've got to do the same thing because we're the hands and feet of Jesus. So the early church, did we got to take that baton and we've got to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you are. Remember a couple years ago, we said, hey, you know what we're going to try to do as a church is we're going to try to help people who are hurting in our community. And so there's a lot of ways we could have helped, but we said what we're going to try to do is pay off the medical debt, pay off the medical debt for people who are struggling financially. So we said, look, hey, if we can raise $125,000, that means that we could pay off all the medical debt of, of people struggling financially in our county, in our county, and maybe help a few surrounding counties. You gave $465,000. And with our partner, we were able to pay off over $5 million of medical debt and wipe it out, for, again, for people struggling financially in 38 counties in Missouri. Because you got that you're the hands and feet of Jesus and you move toward people in need and help. And we came back a couple years later. We said, hey, you know, there's this utility disconnect list and people who are on that list, well, you know what happens. Their utilities get disconnected and they get put out of their place they're living and it's hard to get into another place because they've already uh, got this huge bill with the city and they've got a bad reputation. What if we just stepped in in the name and love of Christ, being the hands and feet of Jesus, paid for their utility debt? And again, you gave over $400,000 so that we were not only able to pay off the whole utility disconnect list, but give to people so that uh, training and coaching and help so they wouldn't get back on it. That's what you do. That's, because you're the hands and feet of Jesus. You know that. There's a group of guys once a week that go down to Algoa Prison and they just spend time with prisoners, investing in relationships with them, teaching them, helping them follow Christ so that when they get out, they can have a new opportunity to live. That's the hands and feet of Jesus. Maybe some of you remember a couple years ago in the fall of 2019, I preached a sermon that was a tad controversial, I think, in the community. And I can tell some of you were there. Uh, you, like Vietnam, I remember. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody was piling on. Me, the church, you, whatever, Jesus, they're all piling on. Especially on social media, because who doesn't love a good social media fight? So, uh, there, but there was one church down in the first ward who, we probably don't agree on like four theological statements with them, right? But they do really good work with people in need. People who are vulnerable, the homeless, the hungry. 
And so over the years, our church had invested in that church and, and helped them and all kinds of stuff. So the pastor, when he's getting ready to go on Facebook to launch this screed against me, us, whatever, uh, he starts it, I, I, props to him, he starts it by saying, okay, before I do this, I need to let you know that the crossing has really helped our church. <laughs> now let me tell you why they're horrible people. Uh, so... Anyway, when you do that, I, just what's going to happen is I'm going to reach out to you, right? Like, we're not going to keep doing this. I'm just going to try to get together with you. So I sent him an email, and he's like, I don't really know if I want to meet you. And I go, look, dude, I'm not coming down to drop a bomb. I'm coming down to build a bridge. He goes, okay, come down. So and he and his leaders, they just took me around and showed me stuff. But here's what they kept saying, and I think they got it. They kept saying, as they showed me the people that were, where, where they had the kitchen, where they were feeding people, where they were showing me where they were taking in the homeless people, where they are doing the classes. Here's what he kept saying. So-and-so volunteers here, and they go to the crossing. And so-and-so, this is them talking, not me. They volunteer, that's a member of your church. And this person over here, that's a member of your church who does this role, plays this role. I go, yeah, because they're the hands and feet of Jesus, that they can speak truth in love. That they move, you move toward need, because that's what Jesus has called us to do. At the end, I said, so what's something you need? Like, tell me the next thing you need to help accomplish your ministry. And they go, a van. I was thinking of something smaller, but they said a van <laughs> to like help people, you know, get these homeless people around. And I go, well, you probably have one picked out. And they go, well, we do. And I go, how much? And they said, it's $25,000. And I was like, ooh, okay. Uh, well, I asked. So I called a few people in here and, and at the crossing and we got them the van they needed. In the name of Jesus. Because you're the hands and feet of Jesus. Did you realize what a mark that leaves? Isn't that what you want to be known as? And people say, well, what about the crossing? Well, I don't like them. I don't agree with them. They're different. I go to a different church, whatever it is. But they are the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. That's what I want us, you, to be known as. And, and we are because of what you do. So do you get, I don't know if you do or not, but if you're an immigrant that comes here into our community, do you know the first people that you very well may meet, not always, but very well may meet, are Christians, maybe a lot from this church, who are serving with a city of refuge, providing opportunities for immigrants, taking care of needs. But, but what if you're a prisoner who gets out of prison and gets dropped off? The first people you'll meet are probably Christians, maybe a lot from this church, who serve it into action that helps prisoners restart, or ex-cons restart their life. So when Jim was talking about giving to the crossing and before the sermon, it, it, yeah, you're giving to the crossing, but you're giving through the crossing to help kids follow Jesus, to help teenagers navigate hard years of student ministry, to help heal families, but also through the crossing to help people in our community that we can be the hands and feet meeting the needs that they have. There, there's a quote by Andy Stanley. I, I've said it a couple years ago, and I think people thought it was mine. It's not. He, he said, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And, and that seems, there's something wrong about that, because you know what we usually say? We say, well, I can't do it for one, because if I do, I'll have to do it for everyone. And that's so convenient, because it lets us off the hook, right? Oh, I can't do it for you. I'll do it for everybody. Sorry, I want to. But what if we turned it on the head and did for one what we wish we could? We can't do it for everyone. But do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. Can you imagine the impact we'd have? The, the impact we'd have both inside and outside the church? I mean, 
How, how might Jesus use us if we were his, his eyes, his heart, his hands, his feet? See, if you just do it for one, because you can't do it for everyone, but if you do it for one, what it means is you could go deep, not just wide. Like you could help one person a lot instead of a lot of people a little. You could go long with somebody because you just, you just had one, one. It could be mentoring a, a, a high school student through the uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. It could be volunteering like a city of refuge and saying, this is my nonprofit or another nonprofit. This is my nonprofit. I'm going to give to you. I'm going to serve. I'm going to keep coming back. I'm going to keep building relationships. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in this. It could be helping another couple with a marriage. Their marriage is falling apart and you're going to go long and hard and deep with them to help them repair their marriage. I mean, the options are literally endless. A few years ago, there was a man in Hartford, Connecticut. He was an older gentleman. He was walking across the street with his milk and he got hit by a car. He laid in that street and people walked by and cars drove up and went around. They saw a need, but they wouldn't inconvenience themselves to meet it. Christians don't have that option. Not ones who serve a savior, who was born to a poor family, who was overlooked and marginalized, who came on the wrong side of the tracks, who came to meet our needs. We move to need, not away from it. Not away from it. Will we be the hands and feet of Jesus? St. Teresa of Avila, 1500s, wrote a poem. Here's part of it. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Let's pray. As we pray, I just want you to ask Jesus to put someone, some ministry, some nonprofit, some something on your heart. What's the one thing he wants you to invest in? The one family, the one person, the one kid? Maybe it's something inside the church. Maybe it's something outside the church. But it's going to require sacrifice. Probably going to require time and money. Who is it, Jesus? Who do you want us to build a bridge to? To do good deeds of mercy for? Jesus, we want to represent you well on earth. We want to be your hands and feet. And we're motivated by this, that you came to us in our need. You came to us when we were the person laying in the middle of the street. You came and met our need. When we were hopeless and without life, when we were dead in our sins, you came into our world and moved into our neighborhood to be God with us, to build a relationship with us, to die and forgive our sins. So Jesus, in your name, as the ones who have received your grace, we want to extend it. As one who have benefited from your blessing, we want to be a blessing to other people. In your name, in the love of Christ. Not because we're good people, but because we worship a good Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great Sunday.